0: Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for A Trip to the Movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London. And in a moment, my guest this week, the wonderful filmmaker Mark Jobs, will be taking us on his perfect night out at the cinema. Thank you for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon. From as little as £2.50, your little one's imaginations can run wild this summer, because every day during the school holidays, Odeon will be showing the most magical fairy tales and animated films ever made, so the whole family can enjoy that cinematic feeling of sinking into the softest seats and being mesmerised by massive screens for less. To immerse your family in an unforgettable adventure from £2.50, look out for Odeon Kids tickets on their website or app. You see, they make movies and the school holidays better. And if you'd like a pair of free tickets to head to your nearest Odeon, stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how you can get your hands on a pair. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, head over to our YouTube channel. And please, while you're there, subscribe and help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch you'll find us at trip to movies pod that's at trip to movies pod on all social media right then time to introduce today's guest who I interviewed just last week on Zoom so let's do this Hello and welcome to a trip to the movies where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week we are joined by a brilliant filmmaker who has directed some of the biggest series on TV. From Marvel's Daredevil, The Punisher and Luke Cage to the terrifying Hannibal. From the swashbuckling Black Sails to the hugely popular The Witcher. Now he's adapting one of the biggest manga in the world into a live action series as the fantastical high seas adventure. One Piece arrives on Netflix on August the 31st. Here to tell us about that and take us on his perfect night out at the movies, it's the excellent Mark Jobst. Mark, fantastic to have you on. How are you this fine day?
1: Amazing, great, lovely, lovely to see a bit of sunshine um, and just kind of, you know, in the run up to One Piece. So it's all kind of kicking off all over the place in, in an incredible, crazy way. And I just come back from Slovenia. So,
0: um, Things are good. On, a, on another job already? You've moved on to the next show? No,
1: no, no, man, no, no, no. Just uh, walking in the hills and the mountains in a camper van with the family, uh, driving from Austria through the Alps there, um, making fires, cooking chicken on fires, oh. hiking. Oh, going to freezing cold rivers and jumping in and kind of waking up and um, just a big active holiday.
0: That sounds – I mean, unsurprisingly, as a director, you've painted a wonderful visual picture of your holiday there. So thank you. (laughs) Um, One Piece. Hey, let's start with One Piece. So, I mean, you have directed some big, big shows. But in terms of global popularity, and I am going to be completely transparent – I'm saying this having just done my research because One Piece I had not heard of until I did my research. But oh boy, this is one of the biggest IPs on the planet, isn't it?
1: Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, look, the Marvel Studios work that I've done is pretty Mm. big. There's a pretty, you know, loyal fan base to them. The Witcher, you know, was probably even more loyal than the Marvel shows, but this is on a different level and I you know I I didn't know about that when I kind of was given the the scripts to read and went to LA to go and talk to them about I just didn't really know about it. I mean I knew it existed I'd heard of one piece and I knew that the anime was popular and um but on this scale you know, this is on a different level. You know, uh, I don't know whether you've seen any of the footage that's come out of the um, – last night uh, they, they did a big event at, on Santa Monica Beach. Yeah,
0: on the pier there, yeah. Did you see any of that <laughs> yeah, stuff? Yeah, I did. It looks incredible. I mean,
1: it, it, you know, for me, that's incredibly exciting mm. because, you know, when you come from theatre, you have such a direct contact with the audience and the people who come in and see your shows that you sort of – you can you can calibrate what – the audience is feeling from the reaction that you're getting back and in film obviously you know it goes out and you kind of think well there's a couple of reviews you get that but you don't get that sort of sense of connection in the same way that you do with theater so when i saw that on the beach i just you know i had a i had a message from uh, kiki inyaki who plays luffy who's out there with emily and 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 jacob and matt owens who's the showrunner and it's it's fantastic. I mean, it's insane, but it is fantastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely an audience for One Piece. I'm just going to reel off some stats. Uh, so the manga, the original manga created by Ichiro Oda, the best-selling manga on the planet – the one piece anime series, the animated series, was the most watched t v show in the world in twenty twenty two beating out stranger things. This is a big deal
1: that i that i didn't know, oh my God, you know, I can feel my bum <laughs> clenching already um, uh, uh, yeah and and um what so has been so interesting for me, Alex, is that you know. We did a big global casting session for this over many months. I don't know, seven, nine months or something like that. You know, on my day one of production, we agree that, you know, this show will stand or fall on the casting of it, really. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got to get the right people for the cast. So we said, let's just start early. Get in there early and really trawl. And what was really interesting to me, uh, you know, is that, there were so many actors that would come into the auditions and say, you have no idea what this means to me. Um, it's seen me through some really dark times. And, and so, you know, it's not just a great adventure with epic landscapes and huge action sequences and crazy, fantastical, wild, whimsical, goofy characters, which it is that too, but it also is about something. And and you you know it it means something to people it it, it, and and they would say that you know it's 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 hopefulness it's sense of um loyalty to friendships it's sense of believing in yourself believing in your dreams believe in your dreams Mm -hmm. man you know um and 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 support your friends in what they want to be and let them be more of who they want to be and and that's great and i understand once i started to get that i began to understand why this show means so much to so many people why they're so super loyal and therefore
0: Super critical, too. <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, I'll I'll do a very quick summation just in case people – if there is anyone like me who's like, what on earth is One Piece? It's this fantastical world with pirates and this young guy who wants to become a pirate, Luffy, um, and he, he's assembling a crew looking for this mystical, mythical, perhaps mythical treasure called the One Piece. And like you say, it's got action, adventure, high seas, but at its core, this beautiful friendship that grows between this crew. Um, you touched on the, the bum-clenching aspect of it. Just take me through because I, I've heard you talk about the hope you feel when you first receive a, a new script and it's sitting there on your desk and you're looking at the cover and the hope you feel as you turn that page and the story that is going to be revealed within. What was that experience for you reading the script for the opening episode of Season 1 of One Piece?
1: All the same. <laughs> you know, All the same. You read the script and you think, yeah, you know, Oh, post-apocalyptic nuclear war. Yeah, um, the country, the world's going to pop. Yeah, you know, let's go and move to another planet. Yeah, um, okay. And then this one comes along, and you turn the page, and you have the same kind of hope, and you think, oh, okay. Yeah, this, you know, oh, okay. Hmm. Okay, yeah. And then you turn the page, and you think, oh, right. You know, that's nice. That's, um, oh, and then... and then you, you get to the end of it and you think, I've just been taken on a, a huge journey. I've got characters that got rubber abilities mm-hmm. to stretch all over the place and limbs that go all over the place and the character that with that cuts himself up into hundreds of different pieces, <laughs> um, which is ridiculous, you know. And um and action sequences that are mind blowingly ambitious in landscapes and worlds that are very different. But I also feel like I've really got to know these characters and that there are moments within it that are so small and are so intimate and so insightful about what it is to be a human being and insightful about our world. And it's very rare that you get scripts that make you feel like you've expanded into a world, but also that you've been brought back to something really human. And I guess, you know, as a character and story man, um, that is something that I've become really interested in. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the big question is: is right. So, how do we do
0: this? I bet, I, I, anyway. and I bet that question is is, is 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 quite a big question when you walk walk onto these. Truly, I watched the behind-the-scenes featurette. These truly spectacular sets. And the I mean, look, to bring it down to basics, the money that has been spent on creating this world for these characters to exist in. And when you sort of look around that set, does, does, does it ever feel like, wow, this is a high-pressure gig, or is it just a big sandbox for you to play in?
1: It's really exciting. <laughs> I mean... It, it, you know, I all, all I can say is uh, thank God I'm doing it, having had the experience in my life of having done all the other shows that I've done, and that this isn't my first gig. Because <laughs> if it was my first gig, I don't think I would go to the toilet, or I'd either go to the toilet loads and loads and loads all the time, or I wouldn't go at all because you'd just get so bunged <laughs> up. You know, but 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 having done all those other big shows, and 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 I think it was a combination of having done, you know, some big Marvel episodes for daredevil the punisher and luke cage and then coming in on the witcher and the big sword fights that i was doing with henry cavill uh, and then coming in to shoot the finale which was huge for the witcher an enormous an enormous piece of work to draw that together and and through that having built a very strong trusting relationship with netflix um that I felt like I could genuinely be excited. Hmm. Um, I'd shot on those ships before because I did a series called Black Sails with Toby Stevens. Um, so I kind of knew them. Um, and look, I-, I can't say I didn't wake up in the middle of the night every now and then and just think, what <laughs> the fuck? Did I say that? Can I yeah. say that? <laughs> um, uh, or, 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 or just, just think, this could go very badly
0: wrong. I, I mean, it, ha- yeah. it hasn't. It hasn't. Because, I mean, look, these huge IPs with streamers, uh, you know, it, it doesn't always work out. You have these wonderful, wonderful IPs and, um, you know. No- I've been on some of those, mate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jupiter, Jupiter's Legacy, you know, Jupiter's Legacy. You know, Mark Miller, mm. um, great friend of mine, you know, who lives just close to me here. You know, Mark, you know, kick-ass. Um, um, uh, The Kingsman, you know, you know, he is he is behind some of the biggest, best, interesting, wonderful, eclectic kind of um, cinema that we've seen. Uh, And it's his show, Jupiter's Legacy, you know, um, it didn't work
0: yeah yeah, it's it didn't it's work. that weird thing. I invested a whole season in that, so I watched the whole thing, and I can't tell you how disappointing it is when you reach the end, and it's like, and that's it. that's that's your lot. it's it's so crushing for fans of a show, and I was enjoying it. what well, did you did you enjoy it? I did enjoy, it. I, did you enjoy I thought, it. I don't know whether you remember a show called Invincible. It was an animated show over on yeah. um, Amazon yeah. that was on at the same time and. I think there was too much shared DNA and Invincible was a slightly more extreme version, so I think it suffered for... for, And the boys. And, of course, the boys as well, yeah.
1: Yeah, and and I think, you know, interesting for me, there were elements of the boys, you know, I'd look at the boys and there were elements of that that I felt like we needed to bring in Mm. to to Juba's legacy. And, um, you know, I did the episode seven and episode eight, um, and it was a really it was a tricky time because they released um sdk Stephen Denight, who is the showrunner uh, when i came in um so so you know there was a lot of reshaping of things that we needed to do i love Stephen Denight i think he's fantastic he set up daredevil mm-hmm. um, um and so coming on to jupiter's legacy where i felt like um Stephen Dunite is, is is the leader of this and then coming into it and really really realizing that actually somehow something was was not going right on that. Um but you know they they, they are difficult to do. They're really difficult. I don't you know, there's no it's very it's wrong to blame people mm. for these sort of things. You know, it's a miracle anything's any good in the film business, really. I mean there's so many different people involved and you're somehow trying to, you know, swing everybody around to a singular vision. And everybody else has got their own ideas and you know and and they are really difficult to do and and i think you know when i came onto one piece um i had enough experience of of seeing what could go wrong to be able to sit down with the studio and to sit down with netflix and say okay listen here's my experience this is what i see from my point of view as the guy who's trying to deliver it on the floor and this is what we need in order to make it work and if you if you are, if you trust me, and you're behind me and the production team, obviously, then give us this, and we'll make you something fab.
0: It's a, don't hedge. You yeah, know? Uh, yeah. You you go all in, for want of a better expression. I mean, you talk uh, to talk about your yeah. experience. Obviously, you've got over 20 years' experience directing from working, uh, you know, directing EastEnders and Casualty here, and then obviously gravitating. Over to, I think Han, am I, right? I think Hannibal was your first big prestige yeah. US show. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the term of showrunner there, which is sort of, it's a weird term that we're not as au fait with in the UK. It's a big thing in the US. But from your experience working on as a director in the UK, when you first arrived on Hannibal, is the job of a director the same on these big prestige US TV shows as it is in the UK?
1: no. It isn't. Uh, and, um, you know, I was happy for that to be the case initially, because I wanted to learn the ropes, you know, and we're, at the end of the day, you know, we're craftsmen and um, you've got to learn your craft and you learn your craft in the in the UK and in the European market and you learn that, that way of operating within the system. And then when you go over to America, um, you, you need to kind of work out how the system operates there. And Hannibal is such a big show and it was such a interesting show thing for me because you know, I, I was shooting the Musketeers over in Prague for the BBC and I got a phone call from my agents in London saying, you know, there were some agents in America who to my work and wanted to represent me and I and I chatted with them and they said, Yeah, we love your work, come you know, let's 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 get together and I said, Well, do you not think we should meet to, you know, before we kind of, you know, get married? <laughs> um and 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 they said, Well, okay. So once I'd finished Musketeers, I, 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 booked a flight, a bucket flight, you know, um, I got a bus from Sarancester to Heathrow Airport. And on the bus, I got a, a text from my old mate, Steve Lightford, who's a fantastic producer who I'd done several films for in, in the UK, Criminal Justice and Sorted and even Casualty, actually. And then he went over to the States and kind of, you know, was making it big there. And he'd become joint showrunner with Brian Fuller on Hannibal. Anyway, he texted me on the bus as I was going to Heathrow, saying, you know, would you be interested in shooting an episode of Hannibal? And I honestly didn't know what the television series was, but I said, yes. <laughs> uh, so I got on the flight and then I, I just, as I was going on the flight, this text came through saying, you know, um, Brian might, might need to meet you when you get into Los Angeles before, you know, you get the big tick. So I said, that's cool, no problem. So I got onto the plane wedged up, you know, for like 16 hours <laughs> flying to Los Angeles <laughs> and I get off the plane quite nervous because, you know, you know, I'd been in the British market, which is quite small and there's four channels really, you know, and, and I get to Los Angeles and, I, and, and as I land, there's a text coming in saying, Brian's seen your work. He's happy. He wants you to fly out to Toronto. Can you go tomorrow? <laughs> so um, I said, well, can I just meet my agents first, these new agents first, please? Uh, and, and then maybe just take a day's worth of meetings because that's why I'm here, and and then come out. And they said, yeah, yeah, okay, cool, that's no problem. So I met with the agents. I was staying in some little Airbnb in Los Angeles. And, um, and then the next thing I know is this big black limousine coming to pick me up, and I'm going into an aircraft first class. <laughs> and I'd never been in a black limousine or in an airplane first class before. I mean, it was insane. I kind of... You know, I felt like the imposter. Like, what do I do? You know, can I have a free glass of wine? Do, how much do you want for that? You know. <laughs> so I landed. I landed in Toronto and picked up by another blooming car and taking this enormous apartment, and then, and then started to to work on the show, which is very very dark. Mm. You know, as Brian said to me, look, it's it's um, it's kind of it's operatic horror porn. Mm. One of the few
0: shows that um, um, gave me nightmares as an adult. Uh, yeah, it's a really... Oh, it, yeah. oh yeah, Oh, yeah, I loved it, but I, there were moments where I actually had to yeah. stop and just take a moment. It's that intense as a show.
1: Well, imagine trying to catch up on two series worth of stuff, you know, um, and, and then, you know, listening to all that classical music, and, you know, I would have to do Friends every now and then and or, or, or watch, you know, this is my crazy kind of um, confession. I'd watch kind of little... X Factor <laughs> auditions that would kind of make me cry because they were so beautiful, you know. That I go back to Hannibal, this kind of and 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 then and then you know and then walking onto set with Mads Mikkelsen mm-hmm. and with Lawrence Fishburne, you know, um, you know that's that that makes the palms of your hands sweat a little.
0: I bet. Um,
1: but you you know you go back to the work always. You know what's the what's what's the story? Who are the characters, and what do they want? And you you go back to all those traditions that you learn in theatre, which is, you know, okay, where are we going with this story? What's the story about? What you know, what do you want?
0: You touched on the Witcher, uh, and obviously that uh, incredible sword fight you shot between um, Geralt and uh, Renfrey, and uh, I think the end of the first episode, this this wonderful single shot sword fight, and I, I love it, and. I mean, obviously, I imagine it helps having someone as committed as Henry Cavill when it comes to shooting something like that in, in one shot, a guy who goes, I will train, I will do the work, I will do the rehearsal, I have to be in that shot.
1: Yes, and, and actually, it, 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 was, um, it, it was partly because of how he moves and how he can hold a choreography and... And, and he, he is such a skilled swordsman himself that partly inspired the thought of doing it as a single shot. Um, when, I, when I sat down with Wolfie Stagerman, who's the, the stunt um, choreographer that, with, with um, Wade um, Eastwood, um, Wade, Wade works a lot with Tom Cruise. You know, um, Henry had done Mission Impossible with Tom, and there was very much a sense that we were bringing that team in to choreograph this huge important fight but you know there there are these single shot um fight sequences. because i did one also in the on, on the daredevil you know uh, new york's finest the big stairwell um fight and i'm all for doing single shots but i i do think you need to understand why you're doing it that it's not just something which is cool to do although it is but they do, you know, I'm a story and character man. There has to be story and character for the reason that you're doing it. And with that sword fight on The Witcher, it's a big fight. He meets this gang of thugs and then he goes and he meets Renfrey, And that whole thing is one big fight, really. So as a director, you sit down and you say, well, what's the main event here? Renfrey." So somehow I, I've got to emphasize what, the fight is with Renfri and be free to be able to shoot and cut however I want to do that, which means the first section of that fight, I have to think carefully about how I shoot it. What do I need to achieve for the audience? It's the pilot. And for those who don't know the Witcher, they're getting to know him. So if we were to do that first sequence with those nine stuntmen, you know, the the thugs in a single shot, what you're saying to the audience is don't fuck Mm -hmm. with this guy. He's dangerous. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. And then, second of all, by the time I then get to the second part of that fight, which is the main event, which is with Renfrey, um, then I can control it with cuts. And I can, and what I wanted to do in that fight sequence with Renfrey is to say, just to stop it from time to time, so that they were looking at each other, and it was a real sense of, are they going to kiss or are they going to kill? All the time playing that big moment and then boof, you stop and they eye each other like two snakes, you know, what's gonna happen here? If I'd made that first section full of cuts, mm. by the time you get to that, you're already a little tired as an mm. audience. So there was some real proper thinking about it. And what we did is we brought in Steph, who's this kind of brilliant camera operator, to work with the stunt team for three weeks, nonstop, simply dedicated to that stunt team to learn the choreography of the fight so that he could dance with it too, And so Henry could be completely confident that everybody knew what they were doing and he could just go to it. And those swords aren't sharp, but they are heavy. (laughs) So if you get it wrong, (laughs) it's going to hurt. Wow.
0: Wow. Um, I think we might talk a little bit more about The Witcher as we go on our journey, because now, Mark, it is time to leave this reality and enter a dimension of pure film. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So we push open our doors to the temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz, as there always is, in a cinema foyer. The hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Mark. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? Oh, well,
1: you know, part of me wants to take my kids because they're so rude um, (laughs) and honest uh, about my work, about everything. Um, But I love it. I absolutely love it. You know. but I, I am in awe of the Coen brothers and to be able to sit to watch a movie with them and to have the possibility of hearing them talk about it or to be able to ask questions about it and to be able to kind of share some popcorn with them and say, you know, can you just tell me about, you know, when you did Fargo, I just would love that opportunity. And I reckon they're such cinephiles. I reckon they would be incredible guests to be with. What was there? What was, and they might bring Fran McDormand as well, (laughs) because Fran McDormand is just such a, such a goddess of an actor. And she's so brutal, like my kids, you know, that she would, you know, she'd say it as it is. And I reckon I'd just, I'd just listen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so what was, what was, do you remember your entry into the world of the Coens, the first time you experienced a Coen Brothers movie uh, and sort of that, that epiphany, I guess, of going, wow.
1: I don't know whether it was um, Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona was such a, such a um, individual film. Uh, And I remember, I remember Tom Richardson, who, who's a, A great mate of mine, who who I set up a theatre company with, um, called the Three Monkeys Theatre Company with Tom. I remember him telling me about it all those years ago, and watching it and thinking, "Yeah, there's a this is interesting. This is a a real voice here." You know, it was quite simple. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful podcast that Roger Deakins does. um, You know, the cinematographer Roger Deakins, and he he does a brilliant interview with the Cohen brothers. And they talk about raising Arizona and how nobody really wanted to make it, and then maybe maybe on a kind of a you know a shoestring and a wing and a prayer and pulling in favors and all this kind of stuff, and it was a success. And from then on, they they said, "Well, we are just going to make the films the, that we want to make and how we want to make them, and we never and they've never changed that." Yeah, from from raising Arizona. They, 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 they muscled it out. They came up with something that was really wonderful and idiosyncratic and individual. And so they said, well, why should we just dance to somebody else's tune just because they've got the money? Let's, let's rather make it with less money, but make our thing. And, and look at their yeah. work. Look at their body of work. It's just.
0: It's incredible. It's, so it's why they're, I, I guess, why they're one of the most unique voices on the cinema landscape, why each film just feels like a very special, very... Yeah,
1: and not everyone is a success. No. I don't know whether you think... No, 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 I, I, I agree. But they're always interesting to watch, you know, like <clears throat> Burn After Reading, I think is a kind of, you know, um is, is, a, is an incredible piece of work, it, it, you know, tonally to... To get that tone right and tones, you know, really interesting for One Piece because to get the tone of One Piece right has been, you know, a huge conversation uh, between me and the writers and the producers. But, you know, tonally, they're always, they're always really interesting. If you think about, you know, burn after reading Brad Pitt's performance in that is worth watching because, you know, that man is a giant of an actor. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, he, he really, he does seven. He does those incredible, you know, um serious films but you know when you watch him in burn after reading he he trod the line of just being a bit kind of um over the top absolutely he walked that tightrope and every time you thought oh it's gonna go too much he never does (laughs) he never does it's beautiful to watch and then richard jenkins you know who i worked with recently on berlin station who for me is just like one of one of cinema's greatest Mm -hmm. actors you know i did a shot with him and he was wearing these thick glasses with his character. And I was intending to shoot it on a three-quarter back profile because I didn't want to see everything. But when I was watching his rehearsal, even behind those thick glasses, there was so much going on. I said to the guys, Bring the camera, because it's there. That's where
0: the shot is, you know. Lovely stuff. So, Mark, it's you and the Coen brothers going to the cinema. So there's a clock on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema?
1: I'm an evening man. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if I'm going to the cinema um, on my own, I'll tend to go during the daytime. But um, with guests, I would go for the evening. I love the event of it. I love that sense of, should we go for a meal first? You know you know have a meal have a beer chat about the movie about all the stuff you know that goes beforehand and then and then it's dark when you come out and then you go into the cinema and all the lights are there i love the i love the event of it maybe it's the theater in me but you know the the daytime just feels hmm yeah i've done that yeah what's next yeah oh yeah let's go to morrison's (laughs) you know whatever it is um the the event of the evening and then afterwards you say have we got time for a quick pint? Oh, yeah, let's go and have a quick pint. Yeah. I love
0: that. Yeah, and then you dissect the movie and you, you chat about it and you argue about it. Yeah, it's, a, it's wonderful. And the evening is famously a busier screening for a movie. So do you enjoy that communal atmosphere, the idea of sharing the experience with loads of other people?
1: That's part of, the, that's part of why the evening, mm. because it tends to be busier. I love, you know, it's the hum of the theatre, isn't it? You know, when you're, when you're sitting and it's full, and everybody is focused on the one thing, and you're sitting next to each other. You're not sitting opposite each other, so you can, you know, say all kinds of things that you perhaps wouldn't when you're sitting opposite <laughs> each other. And there's that kind of expectation, and there's the da 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 da. Oh no, there isn't anymore. Is oh, it? the um, famous
0: Pearl um, and D music, but, yeah, that oh, no, oh, I oh
1: da 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 da. And it's kind of like when, when you know, and you can feel, and then it and then the lights dim.
0: And everything goes quiet. It's magical. You touched on the tone of One Piece a, a moment ago. I just want to go back to it because it is it's to someone coming to this new. It is absolutely full of surprises. It's got it's cut through with this surrealism that I just wasn't expecting at all. Coming it to uh, coming to it as a as a as a new boy, uh, the, the whole feel of some of the jokes and the performances is. Just so offbeat in such a fascinating way.
1: And the trick is to somehow um still make that feel grounded. Because if you go too far in that kind of whimsy and quirky, then it becomes dangerously silly and um light. And and if you don't if you go too far down the darkness, because there's plenty of darkness in that show too. Mm then you end up losing, you know, the, the joy of it and the fun of it and the playfulness of it, you know. Um, and so to me, you know, one of the things that I felt we really need to do in, in translating a two-dimensional world, which is just pencil drawings on a piece of paper with characters that you can do anything with. You know, you can make them do anything because it's just a drawing. When you then translate it into live action, fundamentally you've got to dimensionalize those characters you've got to give them some truth you've got to give them some emotional backstory and and a history that they carry into this into the into the world and um and that's and that's that's so important because otherwise you're just trying to replicate two-dimensional characters with warm-blooded human beings and that's why i think a lot of Translations and adaptations from the anime into live action haven't worked for me. When I looked at them, when I was asked to kind of come and direct the show, you know, uh, w- what is it that works and what is it that doesn't work? And, um, you, you know, to 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 to, and then of course you still have to kind of reference the manga, and so that's why you know I got these really special lenses made for the show. They've never been used before. Wow. Uh, built built for us by by Vantage in Germany, it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, um. But, but somehow we had to both honor and reference the framing of the manga with these kind of this foot that comes into the foreground of the frame, <laughs> this big long body behind it, or the eye that comes in, <laughs> and still you see the location. But make it grounded in 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 the world of of warm-blooded human beings playing the part, you know. Um, and then to cast actors who, and this was part of the big search, cast actors who have heart. Who have warmth Mm. and charm, who can, for me, because of the way that I like to shoot action, and particularly the way that I wanted to shoot the action in one piece, who could were physical fit and who could carry a choreography, because I do these big, long, fluid action sequences in one piece. Mm. Um, So it was a big ask, but you know, tonally, those are the things that we had to deliver. Ground it somehow but still allow the whimsy and the madness.
0: I saw, I don't know, I don't want to, I I, I might be wrong, but I saw a little bit of shared DNA with the Witcher fight we were talking about. And there's a wonderful fight in episode two that you directed between Straws' pirate crew and some, I guess we'll call them even worse pirates, but it's uh, uh, that's, yeah, that's, right, yeah. <laughs> that's just that's so much fun. That, <laughs> that big long, that big long old boy. Yeah, show. yeah, 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 yeah. It's great. It's great. Um, all right. You have booked the tickets for our cinema trip, Mark. Where in the auditorium are we going to be sitting? Well,
1: you know, one of the things that, you know, having worked in television mostly, um, one of the things that I love most about going to the cinema is sound. I love the fact that you know those bass sounds that you can bring out that you just can't do in television because I mean you're beginning to be able to do it much more because we're we're now beginning to to dub for you know big television screens. But it still you don't you still don't know what kind of a sound system the audience has got to their screen. So you so what usually happens is the dub when the executives come in and say, oh, no, there's too much space in there. You'll never be able to do it, bring it back up again and all the rest of it, you know. But in the movies, <laughs> you get it. You know, you get this sound. So I want to be centre back. I want to be in the centre of that. I don't want to be high up yep. in the circle or whatever it's called. Storm- yeah, the, the, the circle, Storm- the circle. Storm-storm. Yeah, the, if the balcony there. level. Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. I want to be. I want to be down in the centre of it. I want to be I want to have sound all around me. I want to feel my chair vibrate. great. <laughs> you know In fact, there was a, there was a time when um, I was working on a first World War film called "The Silence," which was all about the underground war, where two, you know, in the First World War, where there was, I think it was 7,000 miles of tunnels, and there were 200,000 men under the ground fighting. Um, and there's an incredible story about one man called William Hackett, who's the only guy who got a Victoria Cross. Of the mi- the miners that were recruited to dig these tunnels and the film was called the silence because the germans were digging tunnels too and when they were underground they'd had these kind of little pots that they'd put against the side of the tunnel to hear if there was somebody else digging around them and they could very often hear the germans digging a tunnel next door to them right next door to them and as soon as they because if, if they could hear them they knew they were safe because they obviously weren't going to blow with them in the tunnels but as soon as it went silent get the fuck <laughs> out of there because they're about to blow oh my god so at one stage when we were working on this on this script on this film um we were talking with Dolby to say is there a way that we could put sound into chairs individually in certain cinemas so that you could literally have the sound of the digging around them and then on one side suddenly take it out so it'd be silent so you can really experience the claustrophobia and the madness of what was going on in those tunnels you know but sound is so important to cinema and and it's one and it's and, and it's it's just not something you can you can do in the same way in television you can't have the shared space mm-hmm. of a movie theater with all that sound you can put on cans on your television but you're just watching it on your own and you're not connected to the people who might be in the room with you but in the movies you're all hearing it, and it's, it's special.
0: Mm, yeah, and uh, there are, there are uh, mistakes that I never really considered that until you mentioned it, the idea of you don't know what system someone has at home. So you, you're making decisions, audible, uh, audio decisions and visual decisions uh, on the set. I, I just remember the, the furore that was created about the Battle for Winterfell episode of Game of Thrones where, you know, basically they'd shot it in a certain way, and whatever they were using, it looked spectacular. But everyone at home yeah. on their TVs, they could barely see what was yeah. going
1: on. Yeah, and you know, uh, I mean, um, I, I've had a I've had a um, a young producer come in to a, a grade when you're grading with a with a, with a you know colouring. Um, you know, you, you usually work in very darkened rooms with that, and um, so you can really see the screen and see the light and see the colour. And I've had a young producer coming in, throw open the curtains, throw open the doors, turn on the lights and say, now start great. Because that's how they're going to watch it. Yeah. And you think, what? Where's the art? You know? We're not just making stuff for people to watch. You know, this is elevate yourself. Please be be better than that. You know, you you don't just give people what they want. We're there to extend what people want. You know, to, to maybe, maybe even stretch their idea of what can be done. That's our job as filmmakers.
0: Right, we need to leave the foyer, Mark. One more thing, though, before we start our walk towards the auditorium. Oh, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? Not tempted, mate. Nothing. No, 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 no. I'll have something, but I don't want
1: all that kind of hot dog nonsense. You know, that's just going to make me sick in the stomach. And all I'll do then is thinking about, oh, my God, you know, this is, oh, God, that mustard, you know, that was such a huge mistake. I'm going to I'm going to be taking a packet of Maltesers, a packet
0: of Minstrels. I'm going to have a big box of, is it kiss? Popcorn. Well Botticiss popcorn comes in the, the pre-sealed bags. Do you want the actual cinema popcorn that comes oh. in the tubs? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. In the yeah, tubs. Got you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sweet or sweet um, or salted? Mm, or a mix? Sweet. sweet. okay.
1: Uh, mix. I'll have a mix. I'll take a mix, yeah, yeah. Um and and then I'll and then I'll have a bottle of fizzy.
0: Fizzy water. Oh, I thought you meant a bottle of fizz then. Because thought, it, bottle of champagne. No, no, no,
1: no. <laughs> no, I'll have a bottle of fizzy water. Um, I mean, I have been known to take a bottle of beer, sneak a bottle of beer in my pocket. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I would, I would take a bottle of fizzy water. Um, because all that sugar, you've got to kind of have something to wash it down. I mean, yep. you know. it's- but yeah, no, it's my, it's the antithesis of what I do when I'm shooting on set, you know, where I'm, I, I don't take any sugar at all. When I go and watch a movie, I want minstrels on one side, Maltesers on the other, popcorn in my lap, bottle of fizzy by my feet. Love it. Fizzy water. That's my... That's Love it. it.
0: Great order. Great order. Maltesers, minstrels, popcorn, sweet and salted, and fizzy water. Let's leave the foyer and walk down the no. corridor towards the auditorium. Now, the corridor's looking a little bare at the moment, so I'm going to put up posters as we go down that depict your most important movie memories. And the first poster I'm putting up depicts, Mark, your fondest movie memory.
1: Well, Alex, when I was six... Um I had to go to boarding school for a little time. And we were in this boarding school in Cornwall uh um at a place called Foy. And <clears throat> it called actually it's called Par. And it was a very you, you know, it was a very tricky time. I was, you know, obviously didn't quite know what's going on and da 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 da. Um didn't really know very many people there. My brother and sister were there. Um And we were told as a treat one weekend that we were going to go and watch the sound of music. Now, because of my family upbringing, I thought that was going to be, ah, you know, a trip through African bongos and wooden flutes and some old geezer singing with a zim zither or something like that, you know, because, you know, my dad used to have records of African bird songs and records of the Mbira, somebody playing the Mbira on a ranch endlessly. You know, we'd have that on in the house, and you know, they would take me to go and see the Cossack dancers at the Royal Albert Hall or the whirling dervishes, and you know. So, so I was thinking, oh, you know, I don't want to sit through an hour and a half of, you know, that. But anyway, and I asked to not not go, in actual fact, but they they insisted because they didn't have anybody back at the ha- the, the house that we were living in. And the school to look after me. So we all trooped off to this cinema and it's the sound of music that we all know and love. And I fell in love. <laughs> Julie Andrews. I fell in love with Julie Andrews. I, I, I even, I remember buying the album and on the back of the album was a picture of Julie Andrews and I used to kiss it. <laughs> I used to kiss her. Um, And so, so it couldn't, it was partly, I don't even know whether I actually really loved it, but it was just, it was not some geezer playing a wooden flute. It was Julie Andrews in this beautiful story of the family who were trying to escape Nazism. Um, so it's, 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 that would be probably my, my, my fondest memory. I mean, I have lots of fond memories about going to the movies, you know, Mm -hmm. Saturday Night Fever, you know, you Know when I was underage, I think I was 14 when it came out and desperate to go and see if my brother was going and was it an 18 or
0: something. Uh, it was, oh, it, do you know what it could have been? Actually, I mean, there's some, I, it wasn't what I expected when I first watched it because I thought, oh, this is going to be some sort of funky disco, uh, like thing. Like, I think I knew John Travolta from Greece at that point. I was like, Saturday Night Fever is going to be in the same. Either way, when I first got around to watching Saturday Night Fever, Oh my god! I didn't expect that guy to fall off the bridge. For example, that was that came out. That
1: no, fall off the bridge or get a blowjob in the back of a right. car. It's a and 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 uh, it is a mm-hmm. grown up. Anyway, I remember putting on these massive, great platform shoes so that I could. You know, my brother really didn't want to take me. He was he was eighteen, and I think I was sixteen, probably something like that. You know, and there these these two tone shoes with green and red and yellow that I was wearing at the time horrible mm-hmm. things. You know, um, plat- big big wedgy platform shoes, and and then going to that and and. And being and feeling like this is a proper grown up film, and and I'm, you know, I felt really grown up. And uh, you know, it, it, as you say, you just think of it as a kind of white guy doing disco dances, but it's it's so it's a really good film.
0: Actually. It's a great film, yeah. Uh,
1: and, and it's a bit like Slumdog Millionaire. You know, Slumdog Millionaire has been marketed as this kind of you know with the with brilliantly marketed with that big mm. dance sequence on the train station at, at the end of it, but it's really about childhood. Mm. Um, and Saturday Night Fever is about you know, coming of age. It's about a proper adult coming of age story, you know. Um, so th-
0: that's another We've got way a quandary here then. It's the, what, which post putting up though? Saturday Night Fever. I've only got space for one, Mark.
1: Oh, Sound of Music. I, 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 no, I know. Um, put the Sound of Music. I've got to, it's got to be the Sound of Music.
0: All right. The first poster we're putting up is the Sound of Music. The second movie poster <laughs> we're putting up as we continue down the corridor depicts your worst movie memory.
1: My worst movie memory? um I, I i i always get something out of watching movies so even if i'm not enjoying the film i always get something out of it but what comes to mind is there's a there's a film called the constant gardener
0: mm. yeah
1: it's a really good film with rachel Weisz and um ray fines and i remember it was we wanted to go and see it me and my wife my wife was pregnant with our first child and the only seats that were available were in the front row of the cinema. Oh, okay, so we were kind of like this and trying to trying to take it all in like <laughs> this, you know. Um, and I don't know if you remember it well enough, but it's quite long lens. It's shot on quite a long lens, and it's very handheld. Oh. So there's a lot of movement with the lens. It's very kind of it's a very vital film. It's very visceral. You know, you're really in there with them, which is which is which is great if you're further back. But, you know, because we were kind of doing this the whole time like this, you know, and I was sort of having to go every now and then oh, man. You know, like this and then go back up again like this, you know. And, and, and my wife, who was in the early stages of pregnant, was kind of nauseous anyway. So she was going like this. <laughs> and the next thing I knew that she was kind of, she was starting to vomit. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, um, you know, it's about the only time I think I've ever walked out of the cinema when I was grabbing her and yanking her out of the cinema so that she could get to the bathrooms quick enough to be able to um, evacuate her stomach. Yeah, okay. <laughs> not all over the beautiful red carpet of the <laughs> cinema.
0: Right. Well, that certainly constitutes our worst movie memory. We're putting up a poster for The Constant Gardener with a little caveat that it's not about the movie, it's about the seating and the no. vomit. It really is. All right. Yes. Our third movie poster, as we continue down the corridor, depicts the last performance, Mark, that brought you to tears.
1: Oh, I just cry so easily, Alex. I mean, um, you know, it will probably be an advert that I would have seen. <laughs> or or an X Factor audition.
0: One of the X Factor auditions. Do you?
1: Or an X Factor. Oh, they get me every time, yeah. Um, but honestly... You know, probably of a, of a contemporary movie, it would be the ending of the of, of the Quiet Girl, mm-hmm. um, which is a really simple film, um, and the moment when she's delivered. I don't don't know if you've seen. I, film,
0: I haven't seen the film.
1: She she no. Well, it's really about the story about this young this family who have got nothing and this fractious family life, and they have to give their daughter away to a couple who don't have a child we don't really know why but they they obviously did or they tried or something and they look after her and for the first time in her life she's sort of given attention and at the end of the film she's kind of given back to the family and the girl has had such an experience of love and unconditional attention um that she's em- about that, you know, um she wants to go back to her family to her mum and dad, but she's she, these new couple have sort of become her surrogate mum and dad, and as the man who who was looking after her drops her off and drives away, there's this lovely shot of the girl just kind of watching him drive away and get, she looks to her real mum and dad, and then she just literally runs down this lane to her surrogate father. Who's closing the gate, and he sees her, and he runs towards her, and they hug. And because because Colm, who shot the film, did it so simply, and because it's the quiet girl, she didn't say very much in the movie. That that hug, it's what cinema does so well, Alex. You know, it it creates a moment, and the whole film is about that moment, really. It creates a moment that allows you to pour your own feelings into it mm. and i found that very deeply moving yeah i, I also watched kess recently um again because you, you know i have to watch that film pretty well every year i think because it reminds me so much of my time up in newcastle when i was there you know it wasn't shot, shot in newcastle but it was Barnsley, but but there's something about that film which is kind of so brilliant and special and the performance is so extraordinary there's the moment when he discovers that his bird has been Killed by his brother, and it's just one moment where he he falls onto the sofa and buries his head in his pillow. That again, it's what cinema does so brilliantly. If you set it up right, it um, you, you you're 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 the boy on the pillow on the on that sofa.
0: Yeah, I was yeah. I was researching that this morning and reminding myself I haven't watched kez for years and years. I watched it as a kid, and um, and it's it's just. It's just heartbreaking. And I, I remember, I think I watched Kez and um, Ring of Bright Water, uh, where famously- Yes, what a uh, film. Just, the, the, I think I must have watched the two in the same weekend for some horrible reason. Because, I mean, wonderful films, but both these animals, these beautiful animals that you spent, this relationship growing between the- the, the owner and the pet, and, and you ju- and to see that I, it's, honestly, I still struggle with it. I think I think it was those two movies that formed this this experience. Where if an animal dies in film, I find it the, the most powerful aspect of cinema, like in terms yeah. of getting an emotional reaction from me.
1: Yeah, it is, and and you know, um, and we have you know, it, it's partly because they don't speak, mm. and so so in the relationship that the, the human being has with the with the animal. It, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's not a negotiate not a negotiated relationship or a transactional relationship. It's purely about feeling mm. and about love. And so, you know, and with the story of Billy in, in, in Kes, who, who, it's the only thing he can communicate with. It's the only thing he has some truth with. It's the only thing he has some love dares to love. You know, because, and then the other, the other scene, of course, in Kes is the, is the caning scene. I don't know if you remember that when the boys are. You know they're, they're they're trying to get rid of their cigarettes, and so they hand it to this little kid and say, "You put them in your pocket because you, you know you're just a little kid." Uh, and then of course they all get brought in by this headmaster who does this brilliant performance, saying what kind of rubbish people they are, and they never listen. And oh, the younger generation are just rubbish, and you probably got cigarettes in your pockets. Empty your pockets. And and this little boy's going, "Oh my god, I'm going to get caught!" And so he says he he tries to get his he tries to say, "Excuse me, sir." What? empty pocket, you know, and then, and then he enters his pockets, and then, of course, they find the cigarettes on him, and then he pulls out this cane, and he canes them, and these are such urchins, all these boys are such urchins, that the pain, the performances Ken Loachers get, gets from these boys is just incredible, and then it comes to the little boy, and and when the headmaster rounds on the little boy, his eyes are just welling up with these huge, big tears, and, you know, I mean, I defy anybody to, to not blubber
0: that particular moment. Oh, right, then. What shall we put up? The poster for The Quiet Girl or a poster for Kez? Kez. All right, then. There it goes. 1969. You've talked me around. you talked me 1960. I didn't mean to lean on you, but, yeah, I, I kind of want the poster for Kez to go. Let's put the poster for Kez up. All right, our final poster then, Mark, before we leave the corridor and enter the auditorium, depicts your unpopular movie opinion.
1: You're taking me to dangerous territory here, Mister. <laughs> um I, my dangerous opinion is that I was really disappointed with Top Gun
0: Maverick. Wow. Okay. So this is ninety six percent on Rotten Tomatoes, one and a half billion dollars at the box office. The movie that Steven Spielberg said saved cinema.
1: Well, all that is true. I, I think it did uh, uh, save cinema, and you, you know, it, it brought people back into the cinema, and all, all that is true. The action sequences are incredible. The the it's it's a it, this is just me as a this is me as a storyteller, and it, it's it's not a bad film. There's nothing wrong with it. I went to go and see it with my son in a big cinema with big sound, and I wanted that big full experience, and I got all of that, and he came away feeling very satisfied. Mm. But for me, I felt it was a real missed opportunity. I felt And this is why I probably wasn't, wouldn't ever get asked to shoot a Top Gun reboot. You know, I just felt like the gift that Tom Cruise. I would love the. I would love Tom Cruise to have bequeathed a different gift through that film. You know, I know it saves cinema, and that's really worthwhile. But he's a sixty-something-year-old man, and his lover Jennifer Colley is you know, equally old. And I would have loved to have made a big blockbuster movie like that, that somehow celebrates that it's okay to be on that side of life and not pretend that you're 20. And it felt like, you know, Tom Cruise is so extraordinary. You know, he he, he he's so fit. He's so well kept he's not got a gray hair on his head and all the rest of it, but I suppose I just felt like wouldn't it have been great to have made a blockbuster movie in which the sixty year old was a sixty year old and he wasn't playing volleyball on the beach in the setting sun uh, an equal to all the twenty something year olds on the on the beach there that somehow he was handing over to the next generation, and that actually the film was really about the generosity wisdom the 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 truth which is that we when you get older have to start handing things back to the new generation to say this is what i try and do as a filmmaker is to try and help young filmmakers to kind of gain something of what i have maybe learned over the years that i've been doing stuff and wouldn't it have been great if it if he had handed it over to miles mm-hmm. teller um, and somehow said here's the baton i've had my run I'm going to teach you. I'm going to have to teach you to do this. Well, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to teach you. And so, I came away from that film thinking I would love to have seen that kind of a film because it's a message to the world to say there are great benefits of getting older. You don't have to pretend to be twenty. But that's why you know. But he, he, you know,
0: that's my view. solid, solid reasoning. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there is a thing about. Um Actors not hold, handing over the bat, and despite people expecting it to happen, I mean, you look at Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the indie movie where it was all sort of—it seemed to be set up to go—and here, Shia LaBeouf take it and run with it. I'm out now, uh, but no, uh, that wasn't uh, the case.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and you know, w- we won't get an indie six, I doubt. You know, very much. You know, it's a wonderful franchise, and so then you're going to have to kind of, you know, twist yourself into all kinds of different shapes to try and keep that, you know, IP alive, but. I just feel like, you know, and, 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 you know, it's a Hollywood thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, it, and I don't know, it might be a star thing. I don't know Tom Cruise, but it might be that, you know, he didn't, he wouldn't have wanted to do the film if it, that's what the case mm-hmm. it was. But I just felt like, you know, such a big franchise to have set the scene to say, this is who I am now. I am this age and it's, I've had my time and I've fought my battles and I still have a heart. Look at Val Kilmer in the film, you know. Um, and and now it's your turn. And be bloody good at it. And I'm going to be tough on you, but be good at it.
0: I'm putting up a poster for Top Gun Maverick as your unpopular movie opinion that you did not think it delivered what it could have delivered. Okay, we've arrived at the last set of doors. We're going to push them open and walk into the auditorium. You and the Coen brothers are going to take your seats in the centre towards the back. Now... We're going to play a few things on the screen. The first thing we're going to play on the screen before we get to the movie you've picked for us is the trailer for the film you're most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Wonka. The Timothy Chalamet Wonka origin story directed by the wonderful Paul King. Okay, great. Why why are you looking forward to that?
1: Oh, because I love the trailer. I just thought the trailer was a hoot, and I thought, I thought Timothy Chalamet has got just the right em- energy to to take this thing off. And that, he has a, a bit of an energy like Inyaki Godoy on on on, on One Piece for for Luffy as well. It didn't feel forced, didn't, didn't didn't feel pushed like the Johnny Depp one. just felt a little bit forced um, to me. But but Timothy Chalamet, I just thought was like, wow, this is just going to be a romp. Paul King's such a great director for those kinds of films, and Hugh Grant as an umphalumpa. <laughs> <laughs> what's not want- what's not to like about that? My God, did you see the trailer? Like Hugh Grant as an umpalumpa, I
0: love it. Yeah, what what a button! Can't what wait. a button on that trailer! You're like you're swept up in all this yeah. majesty, and it starts to swell towards the end, and you're becoming emotional. And then bang, in a jar, Hugh Grant umpalumpa, yeah. fantastic! Great trailer, great trailer. Wonka, it is. We'll play the trailer for Wonka right there now. We're going to next play on the big screen the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air.
1: Yeah, well, I literally did do this, actually. Um, In fact, not, not just me, but almost the entire audience. You know, I was shooting a drama, my very first live action kind of proper job in Wales and in Cardiff, and I'd had a really shitty day. It just hadn't kind of worked. And Moulin Rouge had just come out you know, the um, Baz Luhrmann version with Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor. And um, so I thought, look, I'm not going to work this evening. I just need to kind of clear things out of my head. I'm going to go and see Moulin Rouge. And it was a single single screen cinema. It had just come out and it was rammed, absolutely rammed. And I was in the centre back on my own and Roxanne came out that tango, that dance, you know, rocks and, you know, and, and, and first, what does he say? Something like, first there is desire, yep. then there's passion, suspicion, <laughs> betrayal, or whatever it is like that. And then it goes into this kind of tango and the audience just literally rose up and said, yes. <laughs> and it was this moment in cinema where you feel like this is what cinema is about. This is, whatever you think about the whole movie, this moment, this is cinema. And it was, I'll never forget that moment.
0: And again, uh, it, it goes back to what you were saying about ac- the action scenes you've directed. It's all very well having a musical number, but if it doesn't tell the story, doesn't move the story on, if you don't, if the, the end, if where you arrive at, at the end of that musical number isn't different to where you started, then what was the point in having it? And that, I think you'll agree, does, it does it perfectly. <laughs>
1: yes and and also he intercuts it with the story between nicole kidman and mcgregor and between the prince and all this sort of stuff you know it's so it's so it's so sexy and it's so dangerous and it's just like and it's lit beautifully and it's shot brilliantly and it's cut immaculately and it has all that kind of all the best of baz Luhrmann in it for me you know Sometimes it it, it, it it you know balances doesn't quite hit it, but it, those moments were just like
0: wow. Yeah. yeah, there's that wonderful moment where his female dance partner, the guy who's like first there is passion, as you said, and it looks she acts like he's actually hurt her, and you're like, oh my god, is this is he got is he out of control? Yeah. And then you realise she's yeah. just she's so into the song that she's performing that moment. it's, it's it really is special
1: yeah well it's and it, and it's the real tango it is the tango which is you know the sexual tension between you know you talk about the Renfri fight in in um in the witcher you know the 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 kill or kiss mm. it's the same kind of thing the tango is about that you know isn't it you know it's really kill or kiss you know betrayal or passion you know or you know all all those anger and all those sort of different emotions that are there and you know i've just i was just in Seville recently and you know watching a big flamenco dance there and it's the same kind of thing you know it has so much kind of like You want me? You come and get me, and then fuck off. You know, it's like, wow. All
0: right, lovely. We're playing the musical number that is Roxanne from Moulin Rouge. Right, next we're going to play, Mark, what you consider cinema's most shocking moment.
1: Well, you know, what cinema's most shocking moment, oh, God, I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to kind of pull one out. But for Mm. me... The most shocking moment for me is, you know, talking about my love of the Cohen brothers and I've got them there with me, yep. Josh Brolin's death in no country of old men doesn't even take place on screen.
0: right what 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 a decision
1: i I, I mean I, what a decision, you know, and it's brilliant for that it, 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 it is, it's so shocking.
0: It really, it really is that it's 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 so real as well. It's this idea because you know we are we are built in, or it's certainly uh, my generation is built in to go and there's the big shootout, the fight between you know our in inverted commas hero versus the bad guys. Not for it to just happen off screen and just the discovery of, of like his body, like just lying prone there on the ground.
1: You don't even really see his face. You see the shirt, which is very identifiable because you've seen him go past the swimming pool. But I just spent like, you know, almost two thirds of the film watching, following this man, interested in how he's going to get away with is what's going to happen. And then you don't even give me the satisfaction of seeing him go. You give me more satisfaction by not showing me the satisfaction <laughs> of seeing him go. And how, And that that's just genius, guys. Do you know that? Is, have you any idea how clever that is? Well, they do. Of course they do. Because it's the Goan mm-hmm. Brothers, you know?
0: Yeah. And... It's,
1: it's phenomenal, it's shocking, it's awe-inspiring, and it's like brave beyond belief. And 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 it's the reason why, you know, it's the reasons why film, television needs to sometimes give over to the artists because you won't get those moments if it was a studio film with the executive saying, well, where's the shot of, uh, of, of Brolin getting killed? What do you mean you haven't got it? You haven't got it? Well, go get it. <laughs> Yeah, you know? that's that's what it'll be. Where's his face? I want to see his face. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and you get that from independent filmmakers who just say, you know, this is how I'm going to do it. And I, I maybe that would be the great thing that'll come out of the strike. hey
0: yeah, and certainly, I mean, you could argue that what with. Uh... The recent event movies, the two hundred million dollar plus movies, having struggled to make their money back, you know, we might be at the crest of the wave where superheroes go the way of the western, and you know, we start getting original ideas back on screen. You know, smaller sixty million dollar blockbusters.
1: Well, even less, I would say. You know, as you know, even sixty million dollars, you know, that's a lot of money to gather together. You know, you're, you know, as a, as a director, you know, really in 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 feature films, you know anything below 15 million dollars you can still keep some kind of creative control over once you start getting above that you start to get interference you know it's, it's it's you need bigger money involved maybe 20 million you know but but you know that sort of level um and also you know look what's happening at the moment you know some some in truly independent films are still being getting getting made and maybe that's you know if 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 these if these people can't come to an agreement, maybe it'll be the rebirth of the independent movie, which you know, hopefully, could be the case. That would
0: be very exciting. If independent cinema started getting slightly bigger budgets than they're getting at the moment, then yeah, that would it would certainly change the landscape. Yeah. Uh, just to go back to your uh, your yeah. moment from No Country for Old Men, uh, only because you have mentioned the power of cinema in terms of just a gesture speaking volumes. You don't need any dialogue the bit where Tommy Lee Jones walks towards Kelly McDonald and he's seen the body. He doesn't tell her he's dead. He just literally takes his hat off and just holds it against him. doesn't say anything. And from from that, and she just breaks down. Wow.
1: And I, and I did a series with Tim Roth, um, called Tim, Tim star. Mm, Yeah. And we, we had a big scene in that where, you know, he's trying to come off the alcohol. He's been an alcoholic and he's an addict. He's trying to come off it. and, we had this scene and it was a, you know, quite a long scene on the page. And Tim, who is an extraordinary actor, cinema actor, actually, um, said, Oh, fuck that. I'm not doing all that, you know. <laughs> um, this is what I'm going to do, right? Um, you know, I, I know what they want. They want me to kind of sit in the chair and the music will come and then look at the bottle. He just bought himself a bottle of whiskey. Should I drink the bottle of whiskey? No, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna be a good boy, start the engine up, look at it again. You, you say, I oh, no, that's that's, you know that's what they want. Fuck that, I'm not doing that. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get in the car, sit in the chair, I'm gonna see the, the brown paper bag with the bottle of whiskey and I'm gonna rip the paper back. off. I'm gonna take a drink and I'm gonna drive off. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> and it was brilliant because actually it had so much truth to it. Mm-hmm. You know, within, within that single shot really, it had everything you didn't need to do anything else he understood the character he played the character and and you know that's cinema acting that is that is understanding the language of the film you know how you how you tell a story in film you know we'll come to my my movie the movie that i want to show you so badly you know look at if you you know those understanding the language of film you know has become so uh, reductive at the moment, and, and there's a danger in television that you know, you you, you end up kind of just hoovering shots mm. and making it all in the cutting room, and that's not how to make a film. To make a film, you need to understand what happens when you put shots next to each other, or when you withhold certain moments in order to deliver a moment at the end of that end of it, and and that's what we do as directors. That's our job is to understand the language of film and to and to restrain. And deliver at the right moment, not just. And the cut, you know, the close up, you know, you don't just randomly say, "Oh, what should we cut to now? Oh, let's cut to that," you know, you know, why? And that's what that moment is. That's what the Coen Brothers understand, you know, more than most. I think
0: we are so close to announcing the movie that you are playing for us tonight. Just two more little bits to do. First of all, through the Dolby Atmos speakers, we are going to play the line of dialogue from movies that most affected you.
1: Um, I don't know whether this is a cliche or not, but anyway, in Goodwill Hunting, the much loved lost, missed Robin Williams, the psychiatrist, is talking to Matt Damon, uh, who is, you know, basically saying, you know, it's over, I'm out, you know, done, thanks so much, you know, whatever. And Robin Williams says to him, it's not your fault. Do you yeah, remember? Because
0: okay, he keeps repeating it, doesn't he? Because he just. It's not your fault, and and
1: Matt Damon says, yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 know, I know it's not my fault. It's fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Robin Williams just says, it's not your fault, and he says, yeah, yeah, no, no, I know, I know that. And Robin Williams just says, it's not your fault, you know. And it gradually it sinks into this Matt Damon character who's so armored from all his experience as a child, and he lets it down and. It, that talk about a weekly moment i gotta feel like i'm gonna cry now talking about it yeah you know. i rewatched it this um, morning and it, i was it, crying it, over
0: it, breakfast because it's such an amazing scene it's
1: yeah it's just an exceptional it, they're both of them incredible in that scene and the, you know the truthfulness of the storytelling in it and the beauty of, of, of matt damon's performance holding that together to get to that point as an actor and robin williams with you know, because at that moment, you know, you, you bring all of what you know about Robin Williams, this kind of this man, this giant of humanity to that moment where, you know, he, he just wants to hold this guy, but he has to let him come yeah. to him. Uh, it, oh, it, 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 you know.
0: Wow. Yeah. That release when he finally reaches for him and hugs him is just like you just feel it. Like You can feel yeah. it in your, in your body when you watch. Yeah. It. OK, the penultimate thing, Mark. Yeah. Before we get to the movie, not the penultimate, the final thing before we get to the movie is what do you think is the best use of music in a film?
1: Oh God, this is so difficult because music music is my passion you know um, I'm, I'm musically trained. it means so much to me and and i I, 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 I could say I could say um, Dario Marinelli's unbelievably beautiful and beautifully played. Theme music for Pride and Prejudice. Joe writes Pride and Prejudice. So that delicate piano, that that that, that where you can hear the keyboards. Um, you, you know, it is it, it's a beautiful piece of music, and so I could say that's brilliant useful. because you know Joe was trying to do something very kind of you know um, visceral with Pride and Prejudice, make it a bit dirty and a bit more real and all the rest of it, and then this kind of this music comes into it where you can hear the keyboards. It just worked. It fit. It, you know, it was great. Um, I mean, Trent, you know, Atticus Finch and Trent Rosner, you know, I just <sighs> love their scores so yes. much. You know, I just think that if you l- listen to their scores, they're so varied. They're so, um, they're, 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 they use so many eclectic different music. And it's just like, you know, when I was working with Brian Retzel on Hannibal, you know, it's all, all these different things. And he, and, and Brian would, would compose live. He'd watch the film and he had all these instruments laid out and as he's watching the film, he's grabbing things and, you know, recording it all and doing it live and you feel like Trent Reznor and Atkins Finch got a similar kind of thing and and then you listen to their, their music for something like Gone Girl, which is, you know, very controlled film, David Fincher film and their score is just creates this sense of menace all the time. Yeah. You know, if you take that music out, it's a good film, but it's, you know, it could be a little bland. Put the music in, and suddenly it's like whoa! Something there is another whole story going on here that isn't in front of me, which is I think is really clever. I mean, I love Johann Johansson. You know, if you think about the much missed Johann Johansson, you know, who wrote the score for Arrival, wow. you know, that that kind of bass that comes through again, you know, which I saw that in the cinema. And talk about sound, <laughs> you know. Um, and he and he did it for Sicario as well. You know, just a brilliant, brilliant composer. All, 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 or Dick and Hinchcliffe, you know, who, again, another amazing composer who, who did, you know, Out of the Furnace and The Lost Daughter. And, you know, again, you can hear the instrument, the playing of the instrument, in there, which I love so much in soundtracks, you know. Can I have them all? Can we listen to a bit of them all? Why don't we just leave um, them Do you know what? I'm,
0: you described each so wonderfully that I'm just, I'm going to put them all together. We're going to do a medley of all of those into one beautiful... Don't
1: layer place. them all on the same track. <laughs> Just kind of separate yeah, the absolutely.
0: Tracks. Yeah. Yeah, we know what we're doing. We've got great <laughs> technicians in the booth. It's going to sound epic. And here we are. Mark, we have arrived. It is now time to announce to yourself and the Coens in this auditorium, the movie out of all others you have picked to screen for us tonight. Mark, what are we watching Butch
1: Cassidy and the Sundance Kid.
0: Oh, a classic, no doubt. Why? Why have you picked Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Have you seen it? I mean, that's
1: why. You know, like, it's a movie, man. It's I I was always a big sucker for the kind of um, buddy-buddy movies. I love those buddy-buddy movies. You know, I was thinking about... um, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot was another one that I, you know, thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, another brilliant film with you know Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges um, that I absolutely love. But Butch Cassidy and the Look, I've got a poster of that in my house. Butch Cassidy and the My dad was a cowboy, and I spent some of my life being a cowboy myself. You know, ranching in Africa and ranching in Colorado, and you know, breaking in bulls to earn my pocket money for my dad and. Um dehorning and castrating and branding on the ranch and all that, and so you know that that sort of life is sort of in my in my life, my experience and dad you know and and we were allowed when I was a kid to watch the Virginian as a family show when mum would cook chips and fish and chips on Friday night. the Virginian went out on Friday night, and had, you could barely see the television smoke because all the chips you know had were smoking and you know and anyway, through that, and then of course we moved on to. Alias Smith and Jones with Pete Duell and um, Ben Murphy, two of the most wanted criminals in the world, but they never shot mm-hmm. anybody. You know, um, Hannibal Hayes and Hannibal, Pete, Hannibal Hayes and Kid Curry, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is 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 such a rambling film. You know, there's no real plot, particularly. It's a running away film. The entire film, they're kind of running away, and it's funny it's so funny they are so funny um and the construction of it by by um george Roy is just is it, it's brilliant you know that very first see sequ- the opening sequence when you see the you know the titles coming up and there's this little kind of movie you you know like a um found footage kind of movie stuff going on and then it goes into this big close up of paul newman with his beautiful face and his blue eyes and And, and you just look at that and you, you're already in, you know, and then you go to the shot of Robert Redford sitting at the table, you know, playing cards and it just holds and it holds and it holds on him. you never see a wide shot. Then Newman comes into it and then you go back up and it's still holding on that same shot. It's, and and the landscape is evocative and the humor, you know, I can't swim, (laughs) you know, that wonderful moment where, where they're trying to get away and they're on a cliff and there's water down there. And Newman says, you know, Carl, let's just kind of jump. We'll jump into the water. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to get shot. He said, and and Sunderland's kid, you know, says, well, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to find it all out, you know? And then you discover that he's scared because <laughs> he can't swim. And then at the end of the film, you have that moment where, where Paul Newman says, I've never shot anybody, you know? And it's so character driven. And just going back to where we started this conversation. You know, I'm a character and story man. and. It's all about character. And then, and then, and then you have raindrops keep falling on my head with the beautiful Catherine Ross, who, who I fell in love with. You know, she was in this white dress. I mean, who's not going to fall in love with her? And the genius idea to do that sequence, which is so brilliantly played by Paul Newman and Catherine Ross, that dynamism that, that, that sets the whole film up with this kind of weird song raindrops keep falling on my head that somehow is bold and brave and again it's authored that really delivers the final tragic moment which comes at you when you see it for the first time as an unbelievable maybe that's my most shocking piece of cinema really (laughs) I, i remember seeing it just not waiting for it to the next beat, because I couldn't believe that that's where the film was going to
0: end. I was I, really? exactly the same. I watched it. I watched it when I was very young and I, 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 I I will say I, d- I didn't understand the nuance of William Goldman's script the the death of the old West which now when you watch that opening sequence with Paul Newman standing in front of the bank going well, well I like the old bank where's the old bank going because they've got this new secure bank and yeah. and the the yeah. West I didn't understand any it's a high price to pay for art <laughs> yeah heart, he exactly I I didn't understand any that but it did work for me it worked for me because this this the, the this super posse always in the distance that was chasing them. You never really saw this posse. They were just this thing. And uh, and then the banter, I remember loving it as a kid and like you said, finding it funny. But to bring us back to what you were just talking about, as a child, I refused to accept that the two people who I'd followed this movie were going to die. I was like, well, they didn't show it. I was trying to explain it to my mum. I was like, they didn't show it because they didn't actually die. They somehow beat the Bolivian army because I just, it was one of the first films where the heroes who I'd followed on this journey actually died.
1: I mean, you know, I've got the Coen brothers either side of me. I want to say, what do you think, guys? <laughs> you know, I want to know what you think about this from No Country for Old Men, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Let's talk. <laughs> um you know, because it's brave. It's talk about Josh Brolin, you know, being off camera and, and it frees frames and it goes back into sepia and it's it's like unforgettable and miserable because you love these two guys so much and their relationship and their warmth and their humour uh, and their care for each other, even though they're kind of, you know, bitching about each other, you know. Wow. Yeah, you never had a great idea in your head. You couldn't shoot anyway, you know, at the very end there. and. Uh, 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 and, and also the landscape it's so cinematic um it's so it's so unlikely it's such an illogical film and actually if you read william goldman's book about it you know it's really interesting because he says you know nobody wanted to do it really because you know this kind of long rambling thing which ends up in bolivia um you know the students just thought i don't even know what this is what is why do we why are we going to Bolivia?" you know (laughs) there was no there's no plot really other than to escape Mm. you know yeah and yet it to me it's um it's magnificent it's magnificent it's it's joyous it's celebratory it's it's visceral he sets up a point of view really brilliantly early on with the two of them the humor with the kind of the shootout at the very top of the to show the raindrops keep falling on your head which kind of which cements this sense of what this film is and how to watch it uh, and then the delivery at the end of that really shocking freeze frame that um, makes it uh, for me it's 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 the movie i want to show you man
0: it is the movie you have screened for us tonight and that's it mark the curtains are closing on your trip to the movies. The Coens are milling out alongside you, thanking you for taking them on this wonderful night at the cinema. But before you go, it is time for this week's mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? So uh, we've got a box here. This is a question that has been sent to us, so I'm seeing it for the first time as well. Okay, okay. So, hi, Mark. As a huge fan, hmm, okay, see, see what you make of this. As a huge fan of The Witcher, can I ask if you think the show will survive Henry Cavill's departure?
1: Um, difficult question. Yeah. Um, you know, I I I was only involved in season one, hadn't been involved in season two or season three. I don't know where the minds of the showrunners and the writers are going um, with the show. Um, I think Henry you know, obviously is, you know, fully identified with Geralt and the Witcher as a character, he gave his all to it. But, you know, Liam Hemsworth, you know, who's taking over is is, is equally physical um, and has an enormous presence too. And I think that, you know, what's the choice? You close the show down mm. and you say, that's it, three seasons and done and out. Or you say, you know, Let's see if we can give it a go with 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 someone else and see if see if it works. And I and a fair play to Liam for taking up that mantle and giving it a go. Um, you know, Henry's an A-list actor, you know, he's got a lot of stuff that he he probably wants to do too. And he 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 trains that man, you know, before before you start shooting in the daytime, when you've rapped at night, he'll go and train again at night time. He takes it all very seriously. He does all the stunts himself, even down to the very last close up of a hand. You know, they're demanding shows to shoot. They take a long time. Um, you know, I, I hope it survives. Mm-hmm. I love the show, you know, and, um, I think, you know, Liam's a great fit, but you, the person who asked the question, are the person, people who decide, not me.
0: That is very true. That is very true. Thank you for answering our mystery question, Mark. And that's it. you know what? Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap... Your perfect night at the movies. You are going with the Coen brothers. In the evening, you are sitting at the centre back and you are ordering minstrels, Maltesers, sweet and salted popcorn and a bottle of fizzy water. You are then going to put up a poster for your fondest movie memory, which was watching The Sound of Music and falling in love with Julie Andrews. Your worst movie memory depicts <laughs> a po- putting up a poster for the Constant Gardener with a little cat. That says it's not about the movie. It's about sitting at the front and the vomit situation that ensued from the motion on the screen. (laughs) The third poster we're putting up in the corridor is the last performance that brought you to tears. Well, a mention to the quiet girl and the end of that. But we've gone with Kez and the end. Bird dying. Oh, I don't even talk about it. In 1969. But we are putting up yeah. a poster yeah. for Kez. Your unpopular movie opinion. We're putting up a poster for Top Gun: Maverick because it didn't deliver what you felt it could have delivered. Then we're into the auditorium. Yes. We're yeah. playing a trailer for Wonka, which you're very excited about. Timothy Chalamet bringing just the right amount of energy. The moment that makes you literally or metaphorically, but in your case, literally pump your fist in the air is Baz Luhrmann's rock Sand sequence from Moulin Rouge the most shocking moment in cinema gosh Josh Brolin's death in old country no country for old men off screen the piece of dialogue that most affected you is it's not your fault it's not your fault from Goodwill Hunting. The best use of music in a movie. We've got a medley of Dario Marinelli from Pride and Prejudice, Trent Reznor and Atticus Finch Gone Girl, Yanya Hansen from Arrival, and dickon Hinchcliffe are out of the furnace and the lost daughter the four. We play on the big screen the classic Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mark, that was your I'm trip in. to the movies. Have you had a good time?
1: Oh, man, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. Yeah, I've got
0: to go and watch that movie now tonight, for sure. It's been a pleasure joining you on this trip. Thank you very much, Mark.
1: Alex, thanks, mate. I've really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: And as Mark's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. So jump on there, leave us a review, and if I read it out, we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude only in Leicester Square and Odeon in Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget... You can find the full video for today's Mark interview and indeed for every guest on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there and as I said, hit that subscribe button and help us grow the pod. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.